Hi everybody, Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Before I continue with the next classic on our list here, I thought I'd take just a slight detour and present to you a work written by H.K. Fitzgerald. It's called Raising Catherine, and it's based on the true story of a single father raising his daughter. Perhaps something in this story may be a source of inspiration or perhaps a source of solace to someone during a difficult time. And I thought it was important to present this work to you. And now, without further delay, I give you Raising Catherine by H.K. Fitzgerald. Chapter 1. It was in mid-September of 1999. I was driving along Arlington Road, a familiar route. As I drove, my conscience wouldn't leave me alone. It kept telling me I needed to visit a church I'd driven by many times. I felt like something was tearing at my soul. I didn't know what it was, so the next Sunday, I went to the service there. It was nice. I even saw an old high school friend. As he and I started talking, I saw her for the first time. I was stunned by her grace, beauty, and poise. There was something special about her. I couldn't put my finger on it, but somehow I just knew she was the one. Who is that? I asked. She isn't about anything. What do you mean by that? I asked. He replied, she won't sleep with you. What's her name? I asked. Vanessa, he replied. I'm going to marry her. I don't want to just sleep with her. I said, she's the one. I know it. Good luck with that, he retorted. I'll send you an invitation to the wedding, I said, laughing. Over the next several weeks, I attended Sunday services, Bible study, and I eventually joined the church. I met with the pastor, Reverend Mitchell, several times before I joined. After I joined, he called me to his office and said, When you're ready to date one of the women here, you let me know. I am interested in someone, I said, but I haven't said anything to her. Who? he asked. Sister Jackson, I replied. He laughed and said, That's who I thought you were going to say. I'd already planned to introduce you. I thought it was an act of God or maybe just a setup by the pastor because Vanessa just so happened to knock on his door. He introduced us and we shook hands, more like touched hands. She left his office without saying anything other than hi. The way she said it and how she acted showed me she was interested in me as well. The next Sunday, I asked Vanessa if I could talk to her for a moment. I told her I wanted to get to know her and asked her if she would have dinner with me. I don't know, she replied. I handed her my business card and said, call me when you decide. After I got home, I made some phone calls and ate dinner. My phone rang. I looked at the caller ID. It was her. I thought she would wait the standard 48 hours before she called. I was wrong. I answered. Her voice was so soft. I thought she sounded like an angel. I thought it would be a short, quick call. I was wrong again. We talked for three hours. I hadn't been on the phone that long since high school. We agreed to dinner that coming Sunday because we both loved seafood. We went to Chester Seafood, an old, dark, quiet restaurant. We ate. We talked. I found out she and my mother had the same middle name. I felt like we had known each other for years. I knew she was the woman I'd wanted my whole life. Over the next few weeks, our dating intensified. We were inseparable. 
Everyone at church was talking about us. They complained she didn't have time for them anymore. By Thanksgiving, we'd met each other's families. We began talking about marriage and starting a family. We knew we were moving fast, but we didn't care. Christmas Eve was three weeks away when I made up my mind. I was going to ask her to marry me. I just needed to figure out how and when I would propose. Her birthday was Christmas Eve, so I decided that was the perfect time. Later that week, Vanessa came to my house by herself, even though we'd agreed we started dating. Even though we'd agreed when we started dating, we wouldn't meet alone. We knew we wanted each other, so we knew if we were left alone too long, we would sleep together. That was something we had committed not to do until we were married. It wasn't long after she came over that day before we were all over each other. We had already started taking off our clothes before I stopped and told her I couldn't do this. The temptation was too much for me. Either we were going to do this or she could leave. But she needed to tell me right then what she wanted to do. She left. About an hour later, Vanessa called. Let's get married now, she said. What do you mean? Go to the courthouse? I asked. No, at church. On New Year's Eve, she said. We have two weeks to plan a wedding and have it. I laughed, but she was serious. Okay, I replied. Let's do it. On Monday, I went and bought a ring. I proposed to her that, that Saturday, Christmas Eve, on her birthday. We told our family and friends we were getting married and asked them to meet us at the church a week later on New Year's Eve at 7 p.m. Vanessa and I were very excited about the wedding. She's the only woman I knew I know who planned and had a wedding in less than a week. We spent less than $2,000, and that included the dress, rings, and a small reception that my sister Sharon and my brother's wife, Rita, hosted. During the planning, Vanessa reminded me that this was our wedding and our day, not just hers. I asked, why do you keep saying that? She explained, most women say it's their wedding and the woman's day, but that's wrong. Because we are getting married, not just me. I'm not going to leave you out of the planning. I said, I love it. I loved her thinking. So many women get caught up in the glamour and forget their husband-to-be has thoughts and opinions also. In fact, most men want to have more of a say in their wedding planning, but in order to keep arguments from happening, they just let the woman do whatever they want. They just show up for the vows. Women don't understand how it makes men feel when they tell their fiancés, just show up at the church and don't be late. To men, that means this day is all about me and how you feel doesn't matter. That's the beginning of men thinking their whole marriage is going to be that way. That doesn't end well because if men never get a chance to say anything, they say everything they were thinking in divorce court. Because our wedding was short notice, we didn't think many people would attend. We were wrong. There had to be 150 or more guests. For whatever reason, the word got around very fast. I saw friends I hadn't talked to in years. When she walked in, I started to get nervous. Vanessa wore a white silk and lake dress with a low-cut front and lace sleeves, silver pumps, and a veil. She was just beautiful, flawless in every way. When she got to the altar, my eyes began to tear up. I couldn't help myself. It was a dream come true. 
The ceremony was amazing. One of her friends sang a solo. Things went so well for a wedding that had been planned so fast. As we started to say our vows, Vanessa began to tear up. I'd already cried and almost cried again. I asked, is everything okay? Yes, she replied. I've never been this happy in my life, she said. After the vows, we kissed. It seems like we weren't going to stop. Take her home. We don't want to see that part, the pastor joked. Everyone started laughing. After the ceremony, we went to our house for the reception. We had no hand in planning the reception, but when we got there, it was beautiful. My sister had decorated the house in purple and white. She knew Vanessa's favorite color was purple. The cake was two-tiered with white and purple icing. It was fun, but as the night went on, we both wanted our guests to leave. We wanted to consummate our marriage. After all, we both had been celibate for over a year before we met. I asked Vanessa, "'Will you ask them to leave?' You're the man of the house, she said. That's your job. I laughed and said, you don't want me to tell them to leave. Why, she asked. Because, I said, I'll tell them exactly why they need to leave. She laughed and said, tell them. I stood up and said, thank you for coming and supporting us. We thank you for the gifts and cards. But but Vanessa and I want to be alone now. The guests looked at me as if they didn't understand what I was saying. They continued to talk. So Vanessa said to them, my husband and I want to consummate our marriage. And for those of you who don't know what that means, we want to make love. So please leave. Some of her friends began to laugh. I said to them, please leave. We really do want each other. Couldn't you tell by the way we kissed at the church? They laughed and then began to leave. A couple months after the wedding on February 14, 2000, Vanessa got up around 2 a.m. to use the bathroom. A few minutes later, she started screaming. I jumped out of bed and ran to her. What was wrong? I exclaimed. I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant, she screamed. Is that it? I responded. I thought something was wrong. Then I realized what she said, and I started to scream. We both were so excited and proud. This was the first child for both of us, so it was really a special moment. That Monday, she called her doctor and made an appointment. Afterwards, she called me at work to let me know when the appointment was. When we got home that evening, she asked me if I would be going to the doctor's office with her. Are you serious? I asked. I wouldn't miss this for the world. I'll be at every doctor's appointment with you. She smiled and said, I'm so proud of you. My friend's husbands don't do things like that. I wanted to know everything that was happening. I needed total understanding of the entire process. I was so excited about the baby and I wanted Vanessa to know I was there for her. I was there for and with her. The first appointment went well. Vanessa's doctor, Dr. Johnston, was very detailed and informative about everything. Vanessa had known Dr. Johnston her entire life. He was her mother's OBGYN and had delivered Vanessa and her siblings. He scheduled bi-monthly appointments so he could monitor Vanessa closely. By the time Vanessa was in her third trimester, she started to have problems with irregular heartbeats, swelling of the feet, and shortness of breath. As a precaution, Dr. Johnston referred her to a cardiologist. The cardiologist said the problems were regular pregnancy issues, but he wanted her to go on full bed rest just to be safe. Vanessa had been gaining weight rapidly, and the doctor was concerned that all the complications could be dangerous for her and the baby. She didn't listen. She kept working, and things got worse. 
At the beginning of her ninth month, we had an appointment with Dr. Johnston. When we got there, he told us he was very concerned about Vanessa's rapid weight gain and she needed to induce her and he needed to induce her labor two weeks early. He felt going full term could be too dangerous for Vanessa and the baby. He scheduled Vanessa to be induced Monday, October 9th at 6 p.m. On October 9th, we arrived at the hospital and they sent us to Vanessa's room where they examined her, gave her an IV, and administered medication to induce her labor. Vanessa's labor pain started about 30 minutes after they induced her labor. She complained about the pain, however, she refused any medication. She was afraid it might affect the baby. Every hour, the nurse would check to see how much she was dilated. At about 10 p.m., her pains were about 7 to 8 minutes apart. When the nurse came in to check her again, Vanessa asked, How much longer? Were you, when you're about one minute apart, the nurse replied with a smile. I wanted to laugh, but I knew that would be a bad thing, so I continued to encourage her and tried to comfort her as best as I could. That night, I learned when a woman is going through birth pains, there's little to nothing anyone can do. It's best to just keep your mouth shut and stay clear. Vanessa was in so much pain, she changed her mind and asked for an epidural, but the nurse said it was too late. I felt bad because I couldn't do anything to ease her pain. Time went by really fast, and before I knew it, it was 3 a.m. I need to use the bathroom, Vanessa said. As she got up, I said, that baby's coming. She went into the bathroom, sat down, and her water broke. I called the nurse. They all rushed in, and at 3.13 a.m., Vanessa gave birth to our 8-pound, 11-ounce baby girl. The nurse tried to hand our daughter to Vanessa, but she was in so much pain, she just said, give her to him. As I looked at my baby girl, I was in total shock that God had granted us the child we always wanted. What do you want to name her? I asked Vanessa. I don't care. Leave me alone. Name her whatever you want, she cried. She was in such incredible pain, she couldn't focus on anything else. I named our baby girl Catherine, which means pure, because to me, she was pure and perfect. The next day, after Vanessa had slept, she asked me, what did you name her? Catherine, I replied. She looked upset and said, but I wanted to name her Ruth. The story of Ruth and Naomi was her favorite Bible story. You told me to name her whatever I wanted, I said. That's not right. You know I was in pain and couldn't think straight. I've already signed the birth certificate, I replied. She looked down at our daughter and said, well, the name Catherine is pretty. It means pure, I said. She smiled, looked down at her and said, Catherine. Then she smiled again and said, I like it. Thank God you're not mad, I replied. The doctors were a little concerned about Vanessa's rapid heartbeat and the swelling in her feet, so they decided to keep her in the hospital a few extra days. After after several tests, they cleared her to go home. It was very exciting. We videotaped the entire event so we could watch it over and over, and because we wanted Catherine to be able to see it when she was older. We were both so proud of our newborn child. When we arrived home from the hospital, our real job began raising Catherine. Neither of us had ever raised children, so this was going to be a huge learning experience. We both came from large families, so at least we had some idea of what we needed to do. The first night went well. It was easy for me because Catherine was being breastfed, so I didn't need to worry about night feeding. That was all on Vanessa. 
Seeing what Vanessa went through with giving birth to Catherine made me thank God for making me a man. After about a week, we were settling into our new routine. We had plenty of visitors and even more advice. We listened to good. We listened to the good and trashed the bad. Catherine was a very happy child. She smiled all the time and laughed even more. She refused a pacifier and she didn't cry much. She laughed so much when she was just a couple of weeks old that I wondered if something was wrong with her. But I was reminded we prayed for a healthy, happy child and God gave us just what we asked for. After about a month, Vanessa went back to work and all seemed well at first. Then she began to have shortness of breath and her feet swelled up again. She called and made a doctor's appointment and her doctor sent her back to a cardiologist. The cardiologist did a basic exam. He didn't give her an EKG, blood work, stress tests, or any other tests I expected him to do. He said her problems were normal for a woman who had just had a baby. I didn't think what she was experiencing. I didn't think what she was experiencing was normal, but I'm not a doctor. We went back to her doctor and he suggested she take a couple of weeks off and go on bed rest. Vanessa, however, insisted she was okay and didn't need or want to take time off work. I was so worried about her, but I didn't know what to do or say. I asked her to get a second opinion, but she said she trusted the doctor she had and wasn't and wasn't going to see anyone else. What could I say? She'd been going to these doctors all her life. I just said, okay, and continued to pray. Over the next week or so, she seemed to get better, or at least she wasn't saying anything about her health. Catherine's teeth began to come in, and she started to eat solid food. Everything seemed to be going well. Catherine turned nine months old and started to walk while holding on to the table. She can walk, I said one day as I watched her pulling herself along the table's edge. She just wants to be carried. She's been spoiled, Vanessa laughed. We started talking about how big we wanted to grow our family. I wanted two, maybe three children, I said. She said, why can't we have eight? Vanessa and I came from large families. My family had eight and her family had ten. I laughed and asked, how are we supposed to take care of eight children? Our parents did it, she said. Why can't we? Our parents, I said, came from a simpler time when mortgage payments were $250 a month. Ours is $1,400 a month, and we have car loans and other monthly bills. Vanessa said, the Lord will make a way. I want a big family. I had no response, but I was thinking, that's a lot of children. Later that day, Vanessa said she was having trouble breathing. I told her, we need to take you to the emergency room. You can't die. We have a child to raise, and you want more. I can't raise Catherine by myself. If you had to, you would, she replied. Just don't die, I told her. She laughed and said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, good, let's start working on making you a son. That's fine, she said with a smile, but if we really want to get pregnant, we shouldn't wait until Saturday. Why, I asked. She said, I'll be ovulating then, so it will be easier to get pregnant. What's wrong with now and then, I asked, laughing. Wait until Saturday, she insisted. It will be special. Now is special. I replied. Little did I know Saturday would be special. Saturday came. It was July 21st. We had planned to go on a boat ride with a friend of mine. He called and said his boat was having trouble and he didn't want to take it out until he had had it serviced. We then decided I would cook a seafood dinner that evening and we'd enjoy our Saturday working on our son. That morning, I took her car to have new brakes installed. 
She called and said, we need to talk about saving for Catherine's future. I told her, we'll talk about it as soon as I get home, but why all of a sudden? It's never too early to save for her future, she said. We're expanding our family and we need a plan. Cool, I said, good idea. Later that afternoon, and after I returned from having the brakes installed on her car, she told me she wanted to go jogging. She said she wanted to lose weight before we became pregnant a second time. Why? I asked. You're fine. You're five foot eight inches tall and weigh 165 pounds. I love you and I don't think you need to lose any weight. She disagreed and insisted I take her to a track so she could run some laps. I gave up and said, okay, let's get ready. So when you finish, we can go home. So when you finish, we can go get some seafood. I can cook dinner. Then we can work on making our son, Caleb. She laughed and said, is that all you think about? I'm a man. What do you expect? What else should I think about? I said, laughing. I'm looking forward to it, she said. Vanessa changed into an exercise outfit while I got Catherine dressed. Vanessa seemed to take forever to change. I had no clue what was taking so long. While we were getting dressed, we began to talk about how we would save money to ensure Catherine would be able to go to college. It was an idea we both had, but we hadn't discussed it with each other. I was glad she and I were thinking alike. In that moment, I knew we were going to have a successful marriage. I had the right woman, and together we would conquer the world. We got in the car and left for the track. As soon as we drove... As we drove, we continued to discuss our plans for Catherine and how we would provide for her and our next child. We also talked about what seafood she wanted for dinner that night. She said she wanted lobster, crab cakes, and grilled cod with rice and green beans. We drove to Sullivan High School. The track was in, the track was in excellent condition. There were quite a few people out walking or jogging around the track. It was open where everyone could see from the street. I parked the car, got Catherine's stroller out, and put her in it, while Vanessa played with Catherine's toes. Catherine was just laughing. She was so happy. Little did we know, our lives were about to change forever. Vanessa began to stretch so she wouldn't pull a muscle or hurt herself. How many laps are you going to run? I asked. Eight, she said resolutely. You haven't run eight laps in 15 years, I said. Vanessa had run track in high school and college. She was an all-city 200-yard dash champion. We walked onto the track. I started pushing Catherine around in her stroller. I didn't run because I had a back uh, because I had had back surgery three years before, and I wasn't at a point where I could run. As I pushed Catherine, we looked back at Vanessa from time to time. I said to Catherine, "See your mother? There's your mommy, Catherine." Catherine laughed and kicked her feet. I loved her happiness. It was hard to believe she laughed and smiled so much at just nine months old. We continued to look back at her mother and laugh. The next time Vanessa ran past us, Catherine saw her and she started laughing and kicking her feet. She soon passed us again. A few moments later, I looked back to see where she was and I saw her lying on the track. A woman was kneeling next to her, fanning her. At first glance, I didn't think anything was seriously wrong. I thought Vanessa tripped or twisted her ankle. After a couple seconds, though, I knew something was very wrong. I grabbed Catherine from her stroller and ran toward my wife. When I got to her, I asked the woman what happened. She was running, and all of a sudden, she looked up, put her hands up to the sky, then fell to the ground, she replied. Vanessa's pupils were 
Vanessa's pupils were dilated and she was taking shallow breaths. I dropped to my knees next to her with Catherine in my arms. I called 911 and started CPR. My cell phone was on speaker. I was trying to do CPR with Catherine in one arm and explain to 911 what was happening. Finally, I handed Catherine to the woman who stopped to help Vanessa. I had never seen her before, but that didn't matter to me. I was afraid of what was to come, but I had to trust God. I continued CPR while waiting on the ambulance. I knew this was bad. I'd been a firefighter EMT for 15 years, and I knew that after three minutes, the the chances of revival were slim. About five minutes after I started CPR, the ambulance arrived and took over. They immediately intubated her. Intubation is when a tube is inserted into the throat to supply air to the lungs. I started crying. The fire department battalion chief told me to get in his car. He was going to take us to the hospital. I gave the keys to our car to the woman who'd held Catherine while I did CPR. The car really didn't matter to me at that moment. I just wanted Vanessa to be okay, but I knew in my heart she wasn't going to be. After we got to the hospital, I asked the emergency room nurse, how is she? The nurse replied, I don't know, but have a seat and we'll let you know something as soon as we know something. I sat down and began making phone calls. It was about 7.30 p.m. The first person I called was Reverend Jones. He was Catherine's godfather and a very close friend of ours. I explained to him what happened and told him the the hospital where we were. I then called Sharon, my sister. She was dismayed when I explained what had taken place. She'd been a paramedic for 12 years, so she knew how serious the situation was. She said she was on her way to the hospital. Then I called Vanessa's sister, Stacy. This was the call I dreaded most to make. Vanessa's brother and I really didn't get along, and I knew he would have something smart mouth to say. While I made phone calls, the woman I'd given my car keys to arrived at the hospital with our vehicle. I don't know who this woman was and never knew her name, or at least I can't remember her name, but she was so kind. She stayed at the emergency room with me until I left. She helped me with whatever I needed. She got to ER just when Catherine needed to be changed. I'd left the diaper bag in the car. I thought to myself, this woman must be some type of angel. Moments later, Reverend Jones arrived with his wife. His wife took Catherine while he and I talked. A few minutes later, my sister showed up with her husband. We began to discuss what happened. I explained the best I could. I was still in shock and wanted to talk to the doctors. Reverend Jones suggested we pray. We did. While we were praying, Vanessa's sisters, Stacy and Farah, arrived. Like everyone else, Stacy wanted to know what happened. I told her Vanessa had wanted to go jogging. I had taken her to the track. She had run three laps and collapsed. I explained to her I started CPR and called the ambulance. I told her I was waiting on the doctors to give me an update. She continued to ask questions in a hostile tone, questions I couldn't answer. What did you do to her? She demanded. What are you talking about? I replied. From then on, there was a lot of tension in the room. It was 9 o'clock p.m. and everyone was just waiting. Sharon and I knew the chances of Vanessa's survival were slim to none. That's because they'd been working, working the code for about two hours. Working a code is a term for when someone's heart stops beating and they stop breathing. The doctors perform CPR and other medical procedures. We both had been with the fire department for years and had many runs like this. 
I started to prepare myself for the worst. My mind was everywhere. My heart was sad. I couldn't even talk. I was just lost. My nerves were wrecked and I was shaking. Not long after, at about 9.45 p.m., the ER doctor walked in and gave me the bad news. Vanessa was gone. The doctor asked me to come with him. He asked me if I wanted to see her body and told me that I had some papers to sign. All I could do was cry. It felt like I was dreaming. I wanted to just wake up, but I wasn't dreaming. This was real, very real, and I was wide awake. All our dreams, everything Vanessa and I had talked about, changed forever. There's a passage in the Bible that says, I, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound and we shall be changed. I guess that was her moment, her last trumpet, and Catherine and I I were the ones who were changed forever. The doctor took me with him to sign papers, then he took me to see her. I just couldn't believe it. Just a few hours ago, we'd been talking about cooking and working on our son. I guess God had another plan. God's thoughts aren't our thoughts, or his ways are ways. The doctor took me to the small room where Vanessa's body was. She still had the... intubation tube in her mouth. It was scary. I'd never thought about having to do anything like this. Looking at her lifeless body lying there, I was in total state of shock. I went numb. I sat there for a while until Reverend Jones knocked on the door. I let him in. He grabbed me and gave me a hug. Then he began to pray. I didn't understand what just happened and I didn't want to pray. I just wanted to know why. Why? Vanessa, why now? Reverend Jones did the best he could to calm me down and to comfort me, but it just wasn't working. He told me he didn't know what to say or do. He said he couldn't imagine what I was feeling. What am I supposed to do? I asked him. I'll be there, he promised, for you and Catherine. I'll do whatever it takes to help you both through this. It's not going to be easy, but you'll make it. I started to question my faith. Why did God do this to me and Catherine? Was God mad at me for something I had done years ago and now it was time for me to answer for my sins? I didn't know. I just knew I wanted this to be a bad dream. But it wasn't a dream. It was real. And baby Catherine and I were on our own. Chapter 2. I knew my in-laws didn't care for me, and I knew that was going to make this that much harder to deal with. When they came in to see Vanessa, my brother-in-law had already started to blame me and accuse me of something. I didn't know what or why, but I knew people look for someone to blame when they have failed in their own lives. At one point, he stood up as if he was going to take a swing at me. Reverend Jones told him to calm down. There isn't going to be any fighting. When we left the hospital, my sister's husband, Thomas, drove my car. I was in a daze and I couldn't think, let alone drive. When we got to my house, there was a party across the street. My neighbors were celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. Vanessa and I had been invited, but we had planned to only stop by for a few minutes. When we pulled into the driveway, my neighbor walked over and said, Hey, are you and Vanessa coming? Vanessa just had a massive heart attack. She didn't make it. She's dead. Stop playing, he said. Thomas knew my neighbor as well and said, He's not playing. She's really gone. 
my neighbor walked back across the street to his house crying. About five minutes later, the guests from the party were at my front door. A lot of them knew Vanessa and me. My party's party was over. They were supposed to be celebrating their anniversary, but instead they were mourning with me. It was a very sad, a very painful time. I really didn't know what I was supposed to do. I'd helped plan my mother's funeral services, but this was different. This was my wife. I was really lost mentally. I was really messed up. I paced the floor all night with Catherine in my arms. I felt terrified to put her down. I was scared something might happen to her. Around 2 a.m., the house was still full of our friends from the party across the street. I felt so torn. Part of me wanted them all to leave, but part of me also desperately wanted them to stay. I really didn't know what I wanted, but I knew I didn't want to be alone. The thought of being alone had become real. I knew the time was coming when no one would be there except Catherine and me. That was a time I'd already, start to, I'd already started to fear. Around 3.30 a.m., people started to leave, and long before, the only people who were left were my sister and her husband. Sharon hadn't told me yet, but she decided she was going to stay with me for the next month or so. When she told me, I was very grateful and relieved. She knew I really didn't know what to do, and I was shaken, and I was too shaken to take care of Catherine. Sharon had three children, and she said she was going to teach me as much as she could about taking care of a baby. She knew I wasn't going to give up or give Catherine away. Our father had taught us when we were young the importance of taking responsibility and taking care of your children. Besides, I'd been praying and asking God for a child for years. God had blessed me with that child, and I knew he would provide what and who I needed to raise, to raise Catherine. Having someone else raise my daughter wasn't an option. Men, as a whole, get such a bad rap for not taking care of their children, and unfortunately, a lot of what's said regarding that is true. However, I wasn't going to be one of those men who lets my daughter grow up without me. There was no way I was going to let someone tell her how bad of a father I was and that I didn't love her. I had something to prove, and I knew raising Catherine as a single father was going to be the biggest challenge of my life. I couldn't sleep, but Sharon convinced me to lie down and try to rest. She reminded me that it was 5 a.m. and that it was Sunday morning. She knew in a few hours after church, I would have a house full of guests. I wouldn't get much sleep then. She also knew there were more phone calls that I needed to make. I tried to lie down, but it didn't work. I, I, I couldn't bear lying there, so I got up and started making the phone calls. The first person I called that morning was my brother, Kevin. He and his wife were on their one-year honeymoon anniversary vacation. They were married almost one year to the date I lost Vanessa. Kevin didn't answer his phone when I called, but I left a message. When Kevin got the message, he called and said they were already at the airport waiting on a flight. He was on his way. My brother and I were very close growing up. People who didn't know us that well thought we were twins. We referred to each other as tight man. A tight man is someone you can always count on no matter what. I then called one of my very close friends, Dr. Fulton. He was my professor when I was in theology school and he'd christened Catherine. He'd also been there for me and helped me through my oldest brother's death, Cornell. He died four years ago. 
Dr. Fulton didn't answer his phone, which didn't surprise me. I knew he had a service that morning at 8 o'clock, and it was 7 when I called. I left a message. He called back on his way to church and said he just couldn't believe what happened to Vanessa. He said he would be at my house around 6 p.m. that evening. I told him thank you and that I really needed his encouragement and his guidance. Then I started calling my extended family around the country, California, South Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina, New York, and Illinois. When I spoke with them, most of them were aghast. We'd been planning a family reunion so Vanessa could meet all my uncles and aunts. Now, instead, I was planning a funeral. Like everyone else, they couldn't believe she was dead. I finished my calls around 10 a.m. My sister was cooking breakfast and Catherine wasn't up. I was beginning to get tired, so I tried to lie down and rest. I got up around noon. By then, there were several friends and family waiting downstairs. Catherine had gone back to sleep and things started to get busy. People were coming by, some of them I hadn't seen in years. You know, when people die or get married, lots of old friends show up. I guess that's a good thing. I figured I enjoyed their company while I had them. I still had in the back of my mind that the time was coming when there would be no one there except Catherine, God, and me. Around 1.30 p.m., Pastor Mitchell from Vanessa's church showed up with several members of their congregation. They brought food and had prayer. It seemed as if I were still dreaming. I talked with her pastor for a while. He introduced us, so it was painful for him as well. His wife was very close to Vanessa. She seemed even more upset than I was. Vanessa was so young, so full of life. I struggled with why. Why would someone who just had a baby all of a sudden be gone? I tried to understand, but there was no answer. As her pastor and his wife were leaving, he assured me that they would do whatever it took to make this as easy as possible for me. Around four o'clock, most of the people had left, but I knew more would be coming by. Just as I sat down, my pastor, Pastor McGill, knocked on the door. He didn't stay very long. He had prayer and talked for about five minutes. Then he left. I'd expected him to stay a little longer, but I tried to be understanding because he was busy. He had a large congregation. It was a long day, and I was tired. I knew I had to plan a funeral the next day, but people kept coming. Everyone seemed to want to take Catherine home with them so I could get some rest. I told them Sharon and I had everything under control. Besides, I wanted to keep Catherine close by me. I just felt comfortable knowing she was nearby. Six o'clock came and went, and Dr. Fulton still hadn't come by. Around 9.30 that night, he finally knocked on the door. I was so glad to see him. I thought you weren't coming, I said. He laughed and said I, I could count on him. He had prayer with my sister and me, and then we talked for a very long time. I don't remember everything we discussed, but I do remember he told me how I now had one focus, one ministry, and that was to raise Catherine. He told me I could do it. He knew how committed I was, and he knew I, I could do the task in front of me. You know that God wouldn't put more on you than you can handle, he told me. I wasn't so sure I could handle this, but I knew I had to. We continued to talk, and before either of us knew it, it was 3 a.m. I laughed and told him he needed to go home. I was sure his wife was concerned. He left, and I finally had a chance to lie down and get some rest. Sharon had put Catherine in her crib, but I got her out and put her in bed with me. I was missing Vanessa, and I couldn't stop worrying about Catherine. I just wanted everything to be all right. 
when your world is suddenly when your world suddenly collapses and everything you'd been planning for your future is gone, then what do you do? I just didn't know if everything was going to be all right. I didn't sleep well. I already struggled with insomnia and with the stress of Vanessa's death, I could only rest, not sleep. I got up at about 6am and took a shower. It was Monday morning and I knew it was going to be a long day. After I got out of the shower, I sat I sat on the middle of the bed and Catherine started to cry. I picked her up and sat her on my lap. I thought she was hungry and she was. She reached up and tried to suck on my chest. I guess she thought I was her mother. When she did that, I was crushed. In that moment, everything became real. I cried and cried. I began to ask God, why? Sharon heard me crying and ran into the room. What's wrong? She asked. I said, Catherine was trying to suck on my chest for food and I couldn't give it to her. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? I cried. You're going to be okay, my sister soothed. You just need to feed her with a bottle. She'll get used to it. When she gets hungry, she'll eat. Besides, Catherine is nine months old and she's got teeth coming in. She'll start eating solid food soon anyway, like rice and baby food. My sister was right. When I gave Catherine more milk in a bottle, she went right to sleep. I finished getting dressed and started making more phone calls. I called a friend of ours, Marcia. She lived around the corner. I'd known her for about three years. She was a friend of mine before Vanessa and I met. I was her daughter's godfather. I called Marcia and told her what happened. At first, she thought I was joking. I told her it wasn't a joke. And she came over about ten minutes later. When she got to our house, she began to cry. She couldn't believe what happened. My sister talked with her for a while. Marcia stayed about an hour. Before she left, she wrote me a check. When I asked her why, she told me I was going to need it. She was right. I didn't have much money in the bank. I was waiting on a real estate settlement that I wouldn't get for at least another three weeks. Vanessa had just bought a, a new living room suite a few weeks before she died, so I was short on money. After Marcia left, I called my employer and informed them of what happened on Saturday. They also couldn't believe what happened. My manager told me to take as much time as I needed. About that time, my brother Kevin knocked on the door. After their flight landed, he and his wife hadn't gone home. They came straight to our house from the airport. I was so glad to see him. He and his wife, Rita, were very upset. Rita was in a daze. She said she couldn't stay with me after Sharon and Thomas left. She said she would stay with me after Sharon and Thomas left. I was grateful for all the help I was receiving. After we talked for a while, I realized it was about 1.30 p.m., time to call the funeral director, Russell Washington. He'd done all the funerals for my family members for years, so in my mind, he was the only choice. When I called, I found Mr. Washington had been sick and his wife was running the business. It didn't matter to me. I knew Vanessa would be in good hands. The process of planning the funeral turned out to be very tough. I had to pick the coffin, a dress, flowers, a cemetery, and the day we would bury her. It, it made me very, very sad. Over the next few days, people continued to stop by. I talked with my in-laws and asked for their input. They said everything was up to me. So I planned the funeral. After I made the final arrangements, of course, just as I thought, they wanted to make changes. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't want to argue with them, but that seemed unavoidable. I did tell them there might be a change fee and asked who was going to pay that fee. No one spoke up then, so I asked them, what is it that you want? They wanted her buried in another cemetery. I asked, why? Vanessa's sister Farah responded, you asked what we wanted and this is what we want. Does it matter why? I told them, fine, let's just get this done. It didn't matter. Dealing with them is like pulling teeth without anesthesia. It's really painful. Saturday, the day of the funeral came, and it was time to get ready. Something I just didn't want to do, but knew I had to. Catherine will never get to know her mother, I thought. It was the worst thought I could have. How is a little baby girl supposed to grow up without her mom? I was about to find out. The limousine arrived and it was time to go. Reverend Jones had prayer and we left for the church. It was crowded. There were people from the teachers union at her school. Her third grade class came. The fire department and police departments were there. It seemed like the entire city came to bid Vanessa farewell. I asked the usher how many people were there and he said over 1,000. The church sat 1,200 and there was standing room only. Vanessa had such an amazing impact on everyone she met. The service was long. Everyone had something to say. Most had positive comments, except my in-laws. Their comments were downright nasty. When my brother-in-law spoke, he, for some reason, didn't talk about the good times he had with Vanessa growing up, but used that moment to blame me for her death. I thought it was sad that he felt it necessary to be ugly. I wondered if he felt guilty because of the way he treated Vanessa when she was alive. I didn't like what he said, but I figured it would be over soon and I wouldn't hear from him for a while. After the closing prayer, the procession to the cemetery began. I couldn't see, but I was told later that there were over 100 cars. When we got to the gravesite, it was so crowded, the street going through the cemetery was blocked by people. Others didn't drive through. We had reached Vanessa's final resting place. It is said we really don't feel death until the casket is lowered into the grave. I really felt it, and it hurt. There was one thing that bothered me. How was I going to handle the holidays, birthdays, and of course the anniversary of Vanessa's death? I didn't know, but I was about to find out. One thing that got on my nerves was, was when people would tell me they knew how I was feeling. One woman told me she'd lost her mother, so she knew how I felt. I didn't want to be nasty, but I told her, you have no clue. This was my wife. She had my child. We slept together every night. So don't tell me you know what or how I feel. It's a big difference losing your wife. I lost my mother and this wasn't the same. I was so angry, I told her, until you, use, until you lose your husband, then you won't know how I feel. I really hadn't meant to be so cruel, but I was in more pain than I'd ever felt. Vanessa's death had just become even more real, and I had a huge job ahead of me, raising Catherine on my own. Chapter 3 It was quiet now. The funeral was over, and everyone had gone back to their regular routines. Catherine and I were on our own. I was afraid at first, unsure. What might happen? If something did happen, what would I do? I'd never been this nervous and confused in my life. The first thing I did was give Catherine a bath and get her ready for bed. 
She loved the water. She laughed and splashed. It was fun watching her happiness. She didn't have a clue she'd never see her mother again. I knew I could tell her about her mother, show her pictures and videos. At least she would know something about her and about the kind-hearted, loving person Vanessa was. A couple weeks passed and I began to really mourn Vanessa's death. Everything in the house reminded me of her, and I couldn't sleep. Catherine, for for the most part, slept very well at night. That was a good thing. I just wished I could do the same. I decided to go see my doctor about not sleeping. I made an appointment to see her. While I was at the doctor's office, I ran into an old girlfriend, Chanel, who'd heard about Vanessa's death. We talked for a while. I told her I didn't know what I was going to do. My in-laws were angry, and I'd found out they were trying to find a way to take Catherine from me. But I wasn't going to let that happen. I told Chanel about the conversation I had with my sister-in-law, Farah, when she called wanting to discuss their rights as aunts and uncles. As, as uncles. When I asked Farah what she was talking about, she went on and on about they, how they had visitation rights and other rights. Like what? I asked. There are grandmother rights. She has a right to see Catherine whenever she wants, she replied. I asked her, who have you been talking to about this? As far as I know, there is no such thing as grandmother rights. You need to get a lawyer and then call me. It's crazy talking to them, I told Chanel. She laughed and asked, have you called your lawyer? I said, you know I have. And she said, don't worry because they have no rights and they can't take her. I asked him, what was he going to tell them? He said he'll tell them if they attempt to gain any kind of custody, we'll sue. Mr. Goldstein, my lawyer, said, don't worry about them. They don't have a case. Why? I asked. He said, most importantly, you are the biological father. You have a job. You're a former firefighter and you have no police record. Stop taking their calls until I can look into the matter. You have enough stress as it is. Are you going to listen to him? Chanel asked. Yes, I am, I replied. Chanel said, you always wanted a child. Now you have one. Then she said, if you need help, call. I told her okay and that was and that it was good to see her. I needed to find a sitter for Catherine, someone I could count on and trust not to hurt her. I became very protective after Vanessa died. I always paid attention to everything Catherine did. I wanted someone who would watch her like I would. Even though I knew that wasn't going to happen, I thought I'd try. One of my neighbors' mothers, Dr. Mrs. Davis had a home daycare and watched three children. I was skeptical at first, but I knew I had to trust someone sooner or later. Besides, my neighbor left her son with her. I'd met Mrs. Davis before Vanessa died. She was very nice to us and had given us a lot of information on how to take care of a child. I decided I would have Mrs. Davis be Catherine's sitter. She wasn't expensive, and she had that old-school grandmother grace about herself. I felt good about that. It was about two weeks before I started using Mrs. Davis, I was still going through paperwork and dealing with my in-laws. The first time I left Catherine with Mrs. Davis, I must have called her every hour. I know I'm getting on your nerves, I said, but I hope you can try to understand. I do, she said, and sooner or later, you'll stop calling so much. I hope I get used to it. I said. Mrs. Davis said, you'll go back to work soon, then you'll be too busy to call every hour. 
After I finished running errands, I went to pick Catherine up from Mrs. Davis's house. When I walked through the door, Catherine started screaming and laughing. She ran toward me and grabbed my leg. It was one of the best feelings I'd ever experienced. My child missed me, and she was just 11 months old. I couldn't believe it. She knew who I was, and she was happy to see me. I picked her up and held her so tightly. I felt like I hadn't seen her in months, even though I'd been gone only a few hours. I missed her that much. It was the first time I'd left her with someone other than my sister. The joy of seeing Catherine's face with all that happiness was so wonderful. I finally understood the old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. It was true with Catherine and I. When we got home, Catherine and I sat on the floor and started to play with the educational books I'd bought. We had so much fun, she would pick the books up and throw them across the room laughing. It was so special. I started to cry, wishing Vanessa could see how happy Catherine was. I fixed dinner and gave her a bath. She went right to sleep. Her mother had been the same way, falling asleep as soon as she lay down. I decided I would try braiding Catherine's hair. I knew I would need to learn sooner or later, so now was just as good time as any. Her hair was very thick and soft. I washed it while I was giving her a bath just to make sure I could do it. It wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. I enjoyed it. It felt, it felt good. I'd done her hair without asking anyone for help. I had four sisters, so I had seen how my mother did their hair over the years, so I had some idea of what to do. When I finished, I thought I'd done a good job, even though the parts between the braids weren't straight, but it was neat. Besides, she was just 11 months old, and I didn't think anyone would notice. I was wrong about that. The next day, I took her to Mrs. Davis's house. Mrs. Davis was surprised I'd done her hair. She said it looked good for my first time. I was a little proud of my accomplishment. After running errands and taking care of business, I picked Catherine up early and went home, played with her, and read to her. Later that evening, I changed her, and I noticed a rash. I didn't know what it was, so I decided to take her to the emergency room at Children's Hospital. When I got there, I thought everything would go smoothly. However, I was very wrong. Right away, the nurse started to question me about all kinds of things that had nothing to do with the rash. I asked, what's wrong? I'm her father, and she has a rash. What's up with this line of questioning? Where's her mother? The nurse asked. I replied, she's dead. The nurse said, are you sure? Yes, I exclaimed. How did your daughter get that bruise on her head? She demanded. What bruise? I said. Then she showed me a picture of Catherine. Why are you taking pictures of my child? I asked. The nurse said, anytime we suspect child abuse, there are procedures we must follow. I was pissed. I would never hurt my child. I insisted, I told the nurse, the nurse. Catherine was born with that mark. It's called a it's called a granuloma. Where the hell did you go to school? She left and slammed the door behind her. Then two female police officers came in and tried to calm me down. They said, look, Mr. Fitzgerald, we just want to know what happened. I said, first of all, what kind of nurse is this? She doesn't know what she's doing. One of the cops replied, they called us and we need to do a report. If you haven't done any, anything wrong, then you have nothing to worry about. Why are you questioning me? I asked. My wife died less than two months ago. I bring my child to the hospital for a rash and now I'm being accused of child abuse. How in the hell do you think I feel? Where's the doctor? I demanded. The cops said, we don't know, but they paged him. They got ready to leave 
and they said they would be back. On their way out, one of the cops told me she believed me. I told her, I don't believe you. I want to see my child. She said, we need you to talk to one more person. They will be in shortly. And then she and the other cop left. By this time, I was mad as hell. This woman who looked like she just got out of bed walked in and asked, how are you doing? How in the hell do you think I'm doing? I snapped. I'm from Child Protective Services, she began. What? I shouted. I want to talk I want to talk to a doctor, not that nurse, a real pediatrician. I'm sure they'll, they'll let you know what that mark is on her head. In time, the woman said, your answer to my questions. In time, the woman said, you answer my questions and we'll see. This is how we're going to do this. You're going to get the doctor as I asked. I know you can't take my child until it's proven she has a bruise. Sir, to me, it looks like a bruise. It's okay, I replied. When you find out you're wrong, I plan on taking your job and suing you. And that stupid nurse, I shouted at her. After I'd been there for about three hours, the police walked back in and said, Mr. Fitzgerald, we want to apologize. The doctor will be in shortly. He just examined your daughter and he will bring her with him. You'll be able to leave with your child. So why was I humiliated? Is it because I'm a man and men don't take care or raise their children by themselves? This is the stereotypical attitude that people have toward men and their children, especially single fathers. Why? The officer said, I don't know, but I hope my husband will step up like you have if anything happened to me. More men should take a page from your book. I said, an hour ago, you were ready to put me in jail. They smiled and left. A few minutes later, the doctor walked in with Catherine and handed her to me. He apologized for what I'd just gone through. He explained what the nurse was thinking. I told him, that's bull. You're standing here telling me that your nurses don't know what they are doing? They're not familiar with what a what a granunoma is. I told him, I have a good mind to have my lawyer sue the hell out of you. I feel like if I was a woman, this would have never happened. You people just questioned my ability to raise my child, questioned my character, and insulted my intelligence. They need to come and apologize themselves. He said, they're busy, but I can assure you they didn't mean any harm. They were doing what they thought was best. Again, I'm sorry, and it is your right to call your lawyer. The doctor then told me, your daughter has a yeast infection. It's common. When you keep her changed, you need to keep her changed and make sure she stays dry. He gave me a, prescri a prescription for her. Then I left. I never took Catherine back to that hospital. After that, I knew there were double standards for men and women. I started to question myself. For the first time, I wondered if I'd made the right decision. I wondered if what I'd... I wonder if what I had, I wondered if I had what it took to do the job of raising Catherine. At that moment, it was like a voice came to me and said, you made the right decision and you'll be successful and glad you're raising her. I said to myself, I hope so. The last thing I want to do is fail. This voice said, Catherine is going to love you for keeping her and teaching her and you're going to enjoy the job. Besides, this is something you wanted to do all your life. So go raise her. By the time the whole ordeal was over, it was four o'clock in the morning. I was tired, hungry, and sleepy. When we got home, I laid Catherine down and fixed something to eat. It was around 6 a.m., and I knew I had to get up. I had some appointments I needed to keep, but I wasn't in any mood to be bothered after the hospital incident. I thought things couldn't get any worse. The next day was September 11, 2001. I had an appointment with the coroner's office to pick up a copy of Vanessa's death certificate. 
I got up and took Catherine to Mrs. Davis. When I got to Mrs. Davis's house, I told her what happened at the hospital. She laughed and said, the world isn't quite ready for a man raising his child by himself. Besides, you're raising a little girl. That makes it even harder for people to accept. Don't worry, you'll do fine. And one day this won't be such a bad thing. In fact, you in fact you'll be greatly respected by many people and other men will envy you. You're doing something that most men wouldn't even consider. Go ahead and run your errands. We'll be here when you get back. It was a nice day. The sun was out and the temperature was about 75 degrees. It was about 8.30 a.m. when I got to the medical examiner's office. When I got inside, I told the clerk I had an appointment with Dr. Jean. She was going to go over the autopsy report with me and give me a certified copy. The clerk told me Dr. Jean isn't in yet and the certified copy isn't ready. I said, it's been two months. The clerk said, it takes longer than that sometimes. He then looked at the folder and said, someone ordered a secondary autopsy that's being done at the Naval Research Laboratory. Why? I asked. He said, the form doesn't say why or who ordered it. Okay, do you know how long it will take? I said. He said, I don't, but we'll send you a letter when it's ready. I was bothered by the second autopsy, but I didn't worry too much. I assumed it was my in-laws. It had to be them, especially with all their hostility toward me. Who else would even do something like that? Just as I was leaving, I looked up at the TV and saw an airplane had just flown into the World Trade Center in New York. I stood there disturbed. What just happened? Then, just as we were looking at the TV, another plane hit the second World Trade Center tower. A few minutes later, we heard a really loud explosion. I turned around and saw a huge black cloud of smoke coming from the south toward the Pentagon. They turned the TV up and the news person said the U.S. was being attacked by terrorists who had just crashed planes into the World Trade Center. I was dismayed. I ran out of the building toward my car. I was almost hit by someone who was driving fast and erratically. I heard people screaming, we're being bombed by the Russians. I got in my car and told myself to stay calm and drive slowly. When I got to the street, people were driving like fools. I saw two accidents before I before I'd even driven a block. I tried to call Mrs. Davis, but my cell phone wasn't working. I had a feeling nobody's cell phone was working. I just wanted to get to Catherine to make sure she was safe. By the time I got to Mrs. Davis's, there had been a fourth plane crash in the mountains of Pennsylvania. Mrs. Davis was shaken up, but she and Catherine were okay. We talked about what was happening. We were at a loss for words. I sat there for a while and watched the news to get more information on exactly what was going on. By that point, the FAA had suspended all air traffic until further notice. It was a scary time. Do you want to stay for dinner? Mrs. Davis asked. No, I want to get home, I said. Then I changed my mind. I thought to myself, she doesn't want to be alone. So we ate with her and waited for her daughter to get there. Soon after we finished eating, her daughter knocked on the door. She told Mrs. Davis that she was going to take her home with her so Mrs. Davis wouldn't be alone. When Catherine, when Catherine and I got home, I turned on the TV to watch the news. The only thing on was nonstop coverage of the plane crashes. I understood. It, it was sad, and to think the night before, I thought I had a bad night. This was troubling. Terrorists hijacking airplanes. 
This placed fear in the hearts of many people who travel by air and even in those who don't. Many people died in the World Trade Center and in the Pentagon. My night before was nothing. Thousands of people had just lost their lives and the country would be changed forever. Like many others, I wondered what was going to happen next. I was worried about Catherine and what kind of world was she going to grow up in? I wondered if there would even be a world. An act of terror like that could start a world war. Of course, only God knew what would happen next. After the events of September 11th, I began planning Catherine's first birthday party. She would have her first birthday without her mother. I thought that was the worst thing a one-year-old could go through, but it was okay. I knew everything would work out. I called my in-laws and asked if they wanted to help me with the party, and of course, they said no. I knew they would refuse, but I had to try. That way, they, they couldn't say I was keeping Catherine away from them. They'd already accused me of doing that. There was always an issue with them, always some excuse not to be involved. I knew if it was this bad just three months after Vanessa's death, things with them would probably get worse. While I was planning the party and picking things out, I didn't know if I was doing everything right, but I didn't have any help, so I just picked the things my daughter liked. Besides, I thought to myself, how hard could planning a one-year-old's birthday party be? I decided I would hire someone to dress as Elmo for Catherine's party. I knew she loved Elmo before I'd brought her a Tickle Me Elmo. She absolutely adored that thing because it laughed all the time, just like she did. I thought she would like having a real Elmo for her party. I really didn't know what I was doing with all the party planning, but I knew I needed an Elmo cake to match the theme. After I had finished planning everything, I realized I'd planned a party that was geared more toward towards older children, but that worked out because all of the children who were invited to the party were older than Catherine anyway. I started making phone calls about cakes and other party favors. I wanted this to be big. I wanted this to be a big, unforgettable party. I wanted Vanessa to be proud of me, and I wanted Catherine to be happy. I really just wanted to prove to my combative in-laws and others who thought I shouldn't or couldn't raise Catherine that I could raise her. They wouldn't contribute money, but would criticize everything I did. Just talking with them over the phone had gotten so bad that part of me didn't want them to come, but I was determined to allow Catherine to know her uncles and her aunts. After I finished inviting my in-laws and the other guests, I realized I didn't know what to get Catherine for her birthday. After all, what do you buy a one-year-old? I was going to buy clothes, but I figured a lot of people would buy her clothes, so I decided to purchase her educational books and videos. I thought this was a good idea. However, however, others said I was stuck on education and I wasn't allowing her to be a baby. Well, I told some of them, at least she'll be able to read. I didn't know then, but I made the right decision. I was a little worried about what my in-laws would say and how they would behave, but I really didn't have any control over what they would say or do or think, and there was this part of me that really didn't care. I knew I had to keep my cool at Catherine's party. I had to remind myself that my in-laws wanted me to get angry and act out. I had to remember that they were trying to find a way to take Catherine away from me. I think this was a way to hurt me or to make up for the way they treated or mistreated Vanessa when she was alive. I don't know a lot about their relationship, but from what she told me, I knew it wasn't the greatest. 
When the Saturday of Catherine's birthday party came, my sister and some other family and friends came over to help me set up for the party. I had a clown and Elmo coming. We had a bounce house. I got the bounce hounds for the uh, for the older children. I think Catherine was going to have I didn't think Catherine was going to have any interest in the bounce house. I was wrong. She wanted to get in to get in it after she saw how much fun the other children were having. She wanted to laugh with them. I didn't let Catherine get in the bounce house. I didn't want her to get hurt. I was very protective of her. I just wanted her to be safe. Around one o'clock, the guests started to show up. I was bracing myself for the arrival of my sisters-in-law. I knew they would criticize everything I'd planned, even though I asked them for their input. I knew it was wasn't just going to be it just wasn't going to be good enough for them. About two thirty, my sisters-in-laws arrived. I couldn't see they had. I could see they had an attitude. I walked up to one of my sisters-in-law and asked how she was doing. My sister-in-law said, "Where's Catherine?" with my sister Sharon, I replied. Where are they? She snapped. Your attitude isn't necessary, I said. I don't have an attitude, she retorted. You haven't spoken to me and you're demanding to see Catherine. In my opinion, that's an attitude, I said. Well, I'm sorry you see it that way, she said sarcastically. Catherine's godfather, Reverend Jones, was there and he saw we were on the verge of an argument. He came to me and said, you're wanted outside. I knew he wasn't being totally honest, but he was trying to keep things peaceful. I went outside and checked on the bounce house and the kids who were playing in it. I wanted to make sure everything and everyone was okay. I realized I'd been trying to please my in-laws. It took a while, but I began to realize I just needed to take care of Catherine and not worry about everyone else and what they were thinking or saying. All I needed to do was stay focused on Catherine. At about 3 p.m., the clown and Elmo showed up. Catherine was all into the show at was all into the show the clown and Elmo put on. She was just laughing and happy as ever. She didn't have a clue how sad I was because her mother mother wasn't there for her first birthday. My in-laws were being antisocial as I expected they would be. My sister-in-law wanted to take Catherine for a walk, but I said, no, it's her birthday party. How would that look, me letting her leave her own party? This day is about Catherine, not you. We can talk some other time about you coming to pick her up and spending time with you and your family. Of course, that wasn't good enough. It was really hard for me knowing they just wanted to hurt me and take Catherine from me as opposed to working together to make a great life for Catherine. It really hurt. There was nothing I could do about their feelings. It was always clear they were mad because I'd refused to sign my parental rights over to them. I knew I had a job to do, and I needed to do that job. I had to provide for my child and for myself. I couldn't waste time and my peace of mind trying to please them. Around 6 p.m., my sister said, It's time for her to open her gifts. I thought Catherine would like tearing the paper off the gifts. Catherine had a lot of energy. She never would sit still, always busy. It was fun watching her tear off the paper. She was so happy, and in spite of the tension in the room, I was happy also. After she opened her gifts, people started to leave. My in-laws held Catherine for a few moments, then they put her down, and they started walking out the door. My sister-in-law said they expected me to call them and make arrangements for me to bring her to them. I said to myself, if they want to spend time with her, they'll need to come and pick her up from my house. This had become their excuse for not seeing her or spending time with her. 
I was glad they were leaving. I was very tired and wanted to go to bed. My sisters cleaned the house and put away the food. I took Catherine upstairs and bathed her. As always, she played and splashed in the water, having fun and still full of energy at nine o'clock at night. After I finished bathing her, I read to her as I'd always done. Vanessa and I would read to her while Vanessa was pregnant. Catherine would always go to sleep while I was reading. Even though I was sad and missing Vanessa, I still seemed to be able to find something to smile about. I was still going through the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It was hard. Most nights I would just watch Catherine sleep. I would say to myself, I wish I could sleep like that. I knew I was going through grief and would be going through it for a while. How long? I didn't know. I was only holding on because of the peace of God. And that brings us to the end of the first three chapters of Mr. H.K. Fitzgerald's Raising Catherine. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.